All right, everybody. Welcome to the Hunter's Quest podcast. This is your host, Hunter McWaters, and I'm excited to be with you guys. Probably as you're listening to this episode, I am somewhere on the Alaskan tundra hunting caribou, or maybe on the way home, or maybe just getting home. But I hope you will pray for me and for the project. And, um, you know, Lord willing, we'll be coming home with uh, two tags filled and some amazing stories and films to share with you guys. Um, and I hope you guys are having a great hunting season, whether you're out hunting fall bear, whether you're heading up to Alaska or getting ready for uh, elk season or high, you know, high buck our archery seasons are coming up and, and kind of probably in full swing right now as you're listening. Hope you guys are having a great season, staying safe and enjoying everything that the fall has to offer and that we love to do. Um, today I have a podcast with the CEO of a company called Securit, and they specialize in ultralight weapons storage systems. So they started off on the military and law enforcement side of things, designing armories for the uh, U.S. Army Special Forces, and now they've moved into the um, consumer sector. And, um, you know, for me, I have always felt that I needed and wanted a gun safe, but I just don't want to deal with a 9 million pound giant gun safe somewhere. So I think they've done something really smart, which is design secure and quick access uh, to your weapons. Um, but they're, like I said, ultra lightweight. Um, you can move them around. They're just much easier to deal with. So um, we have a great conversation. The CEO, a guy named Tom Kubinick, he's a very interesting guy. He's got a really cool story, and uh, you know, we talk a lot about entrepreneurship and all that good stuff. So I think it's a very interesting episode um, and uh, a really cool company. So hope you guys enjoy it. I want to remind you one more time. Well, not one more time. I'm going to keep reminding you. Please share the show with friends and family. Please go subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just search my name, Hunter McWaters. And leave me a rating, a five-star rating, and a written review if you got time. It's a free, easy, and quick way to support what I'm doing here. You know, um, I, I work really hard to get these episodes out to you guys on top of everything else I got going on. So I would really appreciate your support. Go over, share the show, shout me out on social media, write me a review, subscribe on YouTube, and uh, and keep Keep uh keep going on this journey journey with me, guys. I got some really cool stuff in the works, as always, and I hope you guys are having a great hunting season and uh, enjoy this episode. We'll see you on the next one. All right, everybody, welcome to the Hunter's Quest podcast. Hope you guys are doing well. And today I'm joined by Tom Kubinick of Secure It. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. It's uh, good to be on the podcast. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. A, I'm not sure where you geographically are, but it's a uh, the weather's been pretty good in central New York lately. So I've been uh, I've been outside building the tree stands and putting blinds in. Oh, nice. Okay, so I am also a fellow East Coaster, which most of my guests are not. So that's nice. Where in New York are you? I'm uh, just southeast of Syracuse. Okay. And then we've got a, I've got a 500 acre hunting ranch. We call it the Securit Ranch. Um, just at the foothills of the Catskills. Okay. So, uh, we last year invested in a bunch of redneck blinds and we're, uh, (laughs) doing the install. And that's, that's kind of a job to get those installed, but they're, most people refer to them as the condos. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The big like tower blinds with the boxes on them. Yeah, it is. And, you know, when it's 36 degrees and raining, I really like them. But all things being equal, I'd rather sit in an open blind. Yeah. It just, you're so shielded. You know, you're so protected from the elements in these things. I've got a friend that was telling me when I first bought them, he said, Tom, you got to get them. You gotta. He goes, dude, I get in the blind. I got my laptop. I get this. I'm sitting at work. I'm just like, dude, you're not hunting. Yeah. <laughs> the point so- is, I don't want my laptop. I remember exactly. I leave my cell phone in my uh, in my little tracker when I go into a blind now because I find myself looking at it and I'm going, "What the hell are you doing?" So yeah, it's- absolutely, man. That's and that's why I like love getting out out in places where your cell phone doesn't even work, you know. Yep. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it is. 
it's different experience, like, you know, sitting in a stand versus kind of mountain hunting and stuff, but they're both cool. I grew up hunting whitetails. Um, but yeah, you definitely got to like be intentional. I feel like about, cause it's very easy to just sit there and scroll on your phone the whole time. And like you said, like, what's the point at that point? You know, it's kind of, that's yeah. I'm, uh, I was doing that one morning and I'm sitting, what the hell are you doing? So I left my phone and, uh, last year I was out with a bow I bet I had 30 days in stands and even just still hunting, moving around. Never had a shot and be like, oh, man, tough season. And I said, no, I actually had a great season. Just, you know, 30 mornings watching the forest wake up is, mm. you know, I'm running a company that's crazy and busy and things going nuts. And so I'm in the stand usually from about 5.30 to about 10 o'clock. And then I head in my office uh, most mornings during hunting season. Nice. Uh, I enjoy it. It's, it's yeah, it's the best part of my day. Absolutely, man. So how's the uh how's the deer density on your place? Because I know like a lot of the mountains areas up there can be kind of rough as far as that goes. We're good. We're um you know, it's I don't have a lot of pressure. I've got a five thousand acre state land adjacent to me, and then I've got a dairy farm, and then it's just rugged terrain. So cool. I've only got I mean, it's five hundred acres and there's three of us that hunt it, really. Nice. Kids, we bring all of our friends come in for a morning, or we do. A, I'll bring kids in sometimes for a youth, um, just individual or like, if I've got family members or friends or somebody who's got a kid who wants to get into hunting but doesn't have parents who hunt, we'll do it. We'll do, we try to get as much as we can to get people involved because it's. I started hunting from a family of no hunters, and the okay. barrier to entry it's not easy. It's yeah. not, there's no, you just don't go out and buy a rifle and go hunting. Yeah. When you, when you know, not, you didn't grow up with it. You don't really know what to do first. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I ended up with friends. I had a bunch of friends that were all duck hunters. I got into duck hunting and got into goose hunting and then and it just kind of went pheasant and then went into deer and, and it just grew and grew and grew. And now it's a, uh, I'm a uh, extremely avid hunter. Cool. All right. Well, I want to hear more about that. Um, but so for folks listening, um, I linked up with you through Baker from Black oh, Rifle. Yep. And he uh, he's a friend, and, and mentioned I should get with you, and um, and you guys and your your folks helped me line it up. So thanks for your time, man. And Tom is the CEO of Secure It, and I want to yes. talk about that obviously too. Uh, as you can see, I have my own firearms storage issues going on behind me. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, and that's not because I want them in the background. That's because I just don't have anywhere to put them because I'm running out of space. But, um, but yeah, let's talk about all that. But I want to hear just a little bit about um, – because I know you kind of have like an interesting backstory and you were a musician at one point, which I was as well. I was, uh, I still am, but I'm a drummer um, yeah. and did kind of the band and music thing for a while. And I know you got some of that in your past. So, yeah, just let me – and maybe weave in kind of the, the hunting aspect of it too. That's kind of interesting as an adult onset hunter. Yeah. So, but – yeah, let me just hear a little bit about you, man, about your story. So I got out of high school. I started playing guitar when I was 14 and uh, got out of high school. I was playing in bands when I was in high school, playing in bars. Um, I was underage, but he's got away <laughs> with it back then. Yeah. And uh, that's all I did. When I, once I graduated, I played guitar six, eight hours a day. And uh, that was my my plan for the future. And that I played in a Judas Priest, Iron Maiden cover band, a Deep Purple <laughs> cover band. Uh, I sent a demo tape to Guitar Player Magazine, which was the magazine back in the day, and they did an article on me. Uh, they did a series. There was called Spotlight Articles on who are the best unknown guitar players, who are the guys out there that nobody knows about, the unsigned. Mm-hmm. And they did an article on me. It was really it kind of, I thought, going to launch my career as a musician. And uh, I moved out to California, moved to Hollywood, and really started pursuing music, and I developed tendonitis in my arms. Ooh. And it ended my career. It was it was done. I was at a point where, you know, I'm I'm looking at like, hey, can I get an audition with Ozzy? Can I get? I just was at a point where I was like, I'm I'm. With the article behind me, it was a it was some clout, and uh, it was a big wake up call because all of a sudden I couldn't play anymore. I had no other skills. That's all I. That's all I did. I think I kicked out of my house as a kid because all I did was play guitar, and. Uh, when the article came out, they said, oh, you can move back in. <laughs> Obviously, this is something. But uh, um, I took a job in sales telemarketing, uh, typewriter ribbons and printer ribbons. 
because they didn't require any skills, anything. Yeah. They didn't hire anybody. Well, and, talk and to me a second about what was that like? I mean, going from having this dream that you're obsessed with, spending all your time on, and just kind of coming to a crashing end, and then you're doing like sales. What, what was that? Was that how was that it like? Was, um, it's weird because I there's probably a year of just really being angry, mm. but it didn't. I kept viewing it as this is a temporary thing. It's temporary. I'm not going to worry about it. It's I'm going to get past this. I got to make some money right now. What can I do? So it wasn't like at no point that I think my career's over. I just thought I can't, I got to heal up. Problem is, um, you know, in the telemarketing world back then, you're dialing a phone, making a hundred calls a day. Well, I didn't know this then. I know it now. Dialing the phone actually perpetuated the tendonitis and made it ah. worse. So it was kind of this, and again, nobody knew this back then, the, the, the knowledge on tendonitis and tennis elbow and those repetitive computer-type injuries was still really new. So I was optimistically thinking I was going to play, and a couple of years went by, you know, two years into the sales job, I actually quit and started my first business in an apartment, um, in my apartment just selling computer supplies. And you know, a couple of years later, I had an office, I was hiring people, and I ended up with 20 sales reps. And there's a point in there where it's like, you know what? I'm never going to be a guitar player, but I got a really cool little business going here. And, that, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I stopped. I actually walked away. I was so frustrated. I walked away from guitar for about three years. And then uh, in the late 90s, I started playing again and uh, went to a, you know, I was playing, I was a metalhead. I was playing, you know, Marshall Stacks. I was a Strat guy. Um, nice. And uh, I went to, uh, picked up a Taylor acoustic and went into fingerstyle jazz, finger, just fingerstyle contemporary music. I couldn't play, I can't play with a pick. I still can't. That, that, okay. that motion blows my elbows out. Gotcha. But I play fingerstyle and I started doing charity events. I never chart, never made money doing it. I just played for free, but I started playing at coffee shops and just to get out and play. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I ran the business. And looking back, there was a point when I looked back. And I realized I love to play guitar, but I hated being a musician. I hated mm. the lifestyle. Yeah. You know, you're up. My, my world existed from, you know, we do sound check at 530, get some dinner, shoot pool till 10 o'clock, go on, do two one-hour sets. By the time, I, you know, we had a crew to tear everything down, but still I get back to a hotel at four in the morning and try to sleep. And uh, you do that for a few years. The, the guys are on the road for 20 years. It's awful. I, yeah. I, I, at the end of the day, I thought this is the coolest thing in the world. When you're you're 18 years old, sure. There's, let's face it. There, there's this girl. There's all this shit going on. But uh, no, I, I I realized I'm much happier running a business in 100% control of my future. Nobody can tell me what I can or can't do. Nobody's you know the music industry is just so full of shit. It's so full of scammers and. Yeah. Everybody is out. Everybody with no talent on the business side is out to milk you for as much as they can because they can't do it themselves. Right. So it was, uh, I really embraced business. And I, you know, and there's this weird like dynamic of where like the gatekeepers, like it's almost like they wish they were you, but, and then they're the gatekeepers. So they kind of like want to like, um, I don't know, like they're like vindictive over you yeah. because they're like somehow jealous deep down, <laughs> you know? It's, it's it is weird. It's um, you know, if they have the power to sign bands or do things, that ego trip is pretty. I yeah. think it's pretty infectious and pretty intoxicating. But uh, I tell you what, as a musician, you laugh your ass. You just laugh. Everything is funny because I mean, you're you're you run pretty ragged as a band on the road, and we end up just just busting. Nuts. All we did was bust each other's nuts twenty four seven, and. <laughs> Oh, you know, a couple of years goes by playing and we paid for a house. We paid for our equipment, paid for our trucks. You know, it was a, it was a four man crew, four man band. I never had the schlep gear and we were playing probably four nights, four or five nights a week going from, this was East coast, Albany to like Cleveland. Um, they called it the throughway circuit of bars. And, uh, you know, a year or two goes by, you haven't made any money. You, you don't, it's not costing you any money, but at the end of the day, yeah, your bank account still has thirty five dollars in it. You know, <laughs> yeah. and you're driving a beat up, rusted out car. Yeah, so it's uh, 
Yeah, I got like a little taste of it. I wasn't as far along into it as you, but we did some like regional touring and did like some residencies in New York City and went out to California and recorded an album and stuff. And like, I just came to the same conclusion as like, I'm a, you know, at the end of the day, I'm like the kind of person I like to get up early, get stuff going. Um, you know, I'm not one of these night owl type people that, and so the people I was with were just like, they were like, it was just this one band I was in specifically. They were just like miserable people to be around until about 5 p.m. when the alcohol started flowing. And then they were okay. Then they'd you know drag out of bed at noon and they didn't speak a word to you till 3 p.m. and just like and then just like yeah, in and out of crappy bars. We were always schlepping gear, and I'm a drummer, so I have the most amount of gear. Right, um, right, right. I got to be the first one there. I'm the last one out, and I get the least amount of glory. <laughs> because <laughs> you're a drummer and right. uh yeah it, it's a tough yeah, it's a tough thing man so i i still play at church you know because i like yep. playing and i like i feel like you get into like a flow state you know and you're playing with other folks and i love that but um that's about the extent of it to me for me now so yeah it's i still i'm not playing right now i had a big flare-up of my tendonitis a year and a half ago almost two years ago and i'm taking some time off but uh i actually i fired all my do- i don't go to doctors anymore I don't go to doctors anymore at all. Yeah, I don't, I don't trust doctors myself. No, and I was getting such bad advice and bad recommendations. Um, I started treating myself and doing my own research on tendonitis versus tendinosis and all the. I developed a uh, a medical device that I use for trigger point therapy. I might patent it, wow. and uh, finally getting results. I'm getting, you know, it's cool. it's. Uh, I'm taking a couple steps backwards to take big steps forward, but I'm hoping that. I mean, tendons heal so slow. I'm probably a year out, from. Yeah. Uh, playing with a pick i'll get back to finger style playing I, mean, I can play with the pick but i can't do the can't do the burner stuff anymore yeah you know, the, the metal yeah, stuff. it's uh you know i feel like that obsessive kind of personality which i have some of that as well where you kind of get on something you sort of get obsessed with it sounds like oh, yeah. i feel like that's like a big kind of part of the entrepreneur mindset i don't know what do you think probably I know as a musician, people always say, geez, it's hard to play guitar. No, it's really easy to play guitar. All you need to do is practice every day for 10 minutes, never miss a day. And once you've done that for a month, practice every day for a half hour and never miss a day. Do two months to that, then practice every day for two hours and never miss a day. You will be a fantastic guitar player. Mm-hmm. The problem is most people don't like to practice. Mm-hmm. But I found it very... Uh, relax i just found i really cleared my head i'd sit there i'd drive people nuts with a metronome doing these complicated scales like painfully slow you know perfect practice makes for perfect performance i'm sitting there going really slow these like difficult things i was working on i'd drive everybody nuts i do it every day for 30 days you know build muscle memory i took a little bit of a scientific approach to it and uh i think you need that personality type yeah as an entrepreneur it's more I look at it, the biggest difference between what I see is entrepreneurs and there's what I call wantrepreneurs, people who want to run a business, but they don't. They want to. They want to be an entrepreneur. and They do everything they think they should. At the end of the day, they don't. And I think it comes down to risk tolerance. Hmm. You have to be able to, you know, you're running a small business. Cash is always tight when you're starting a company. You're hiring people, trying to get things going. And if your payroll is due on Tuesday, and it's Friday, and you don't have enough money to make payroll. I go home and sleep like a baby that weekend, confident that I've got the <laughs> deposits coming in Monday. Because I mean, I but I know my business. I know the deposits come in, but I'm good. I said, you know, I've got plenty of money on Monday and Tuesday. I'll cover them. Not worried about it. And I sleep like a baby. There's a lot of guys that would be going absolutely bonkers. They'd be up all night worrying if I don't make payroll, my employees will quit. I can get arrested. All this stuff. Yeah. And I think it's that risk tolerance that makes the biggest difference. Because, you know, I've been dirt poor. I made a chunk of money. I've lost it and been poor again. And now Secured's doing really well. So I wasn't less happy when I was broke. My wife and I started life out in a one-room apartment in Burbank. And we we lived on a credit card sometime. It was tough. But you know what? We weren't unhappy then. So I take risk a little bit differently. And I actually got people working for me now that Part of their job is to mitigate my risk taking because I, I I enjoy it. I like pushing the envelope on things. So I've got CFO, I got you know, CMO guys who are like, whoa, stop, stop, slow down, <laughs> and then break it all down and get more methodical and actually do it right. Yeah, 
Wow, interesting. So, um, okay, so you get into sales, and then at what point do you kind of start getting into like firearms and hunting and all that yeah. stuff? It's kind of a it's a it's a story of just turning over rocks because I was in telemarketing computer supplies. In the late 90s, I got into the internet and started writing. I taught myself HTML, started doing websites. Wow. And I just was fascinated with it. And, uh, I, started, and I started looking at the whole concept of e-com was new. And this is before Google. Yahoo is a main search engine. So I started making different websites for different products that we had. And I had a website that had some tape rack, you know, the metal racks that would store computer tapes. Back in the 80s, 90s, capacity for tapes wasn't real high. So big companies would have thousands and thousands of backup tapes and they have these pretty elaborate systems for storing all of this data so you could retrieve it because hard drives weren't big enough to store everything and they had mm -hmm. automated robotic systems that would pull tapes and load them to get data off of them so i i created a website that had tape racks on it and all of a sudden we started getting hits for lead requests for tape racks i said hmm so i selling a few of them they were these are big ticket items for us so i created registered tape rack.com and built a whole website for tape racks we became the largest seller of computer tape racks in the country. This is a wow. declining market, but as all the local um, dealers were all just basically closing, we came in and dominated what was left of the market. The HIPAA laws came out in the late 90s, early 2000s for laptop storage with hospitals. You had to lock all your hard drives. If you had, person, if you had patient data, everything had to be locked. And when those laws came out, hospitals all of a sudden had a big problem. They didn't have a way of doing it. So we, I created, tape, uh, was it securelaptopstorage.com, laptopstorage.com, HIPAA, laptop. I'd like, at one point, I had 36 websites all interlinked back when you could kind wow. of do this and spam it a little bit. And we became a huge seller of laptop uh, security cabinets. And it was 2001 that I got a phone call from a guy. And he says, hey, Tom, can you guys store an MP5? I'm like, sure. I didn't. I, mean, I go, what's an MP5? I'm thinking it's a little computer, a little laptop. He goes, that's a little machine gun. I start laughing. I go, who is this? And he's like, he's with the FBI. Oh, no and way. So I said, you know, I'm sure we can. Now, at this point, I didn't own a firearm. Hmm. I'd, I'd been shooting. I was a pretty good shot. I'd never owned a firearm. And uh, I said, you know what? We talked for about a half hour. So give me, give me a week. And uh, I started doing some research. And just very cursory and immediately started finding articles about the U.S. military struggling. They were transitioning from the M16 to the M4. Mm -hmm. M16 is a 39-inch rifle. It's been standard since, you know, since the 60s. Now, the M4 was more of a weapon platform. Modular attachments. There's a lot you could do with it. And none of the racks, none of the things, they, the equipment they had could store the new guns. Additionally, they were fielding, you know, high-value gear, optics, Mm -hmm. electronics, the IR illuminators, all this stuff had to go in armories and there was no ability to organize it. So I called the, my company in Canada that was making my laptop cabinets. Uh, so the owner was a friend of mine. I said, Steve, we got a, I got an idea. He goes, let's make weapon racks. He started laughing. He goes, Canadian government came to me. I'm already, I'm already working on some stuff for them. For oh, no their, way. Their M4s. I said, really? I said, so we started comparing notes and came up with what was called the inter, it was the, uh, um, Integrated weapon storage platform. And it was a pretty complex, it was a flexible, adjustable system, but it was there was a lot of complexity to it. It was a base cabinet and about 80 different brackets to hold all the different guns. And we were a distributor in the US for it. And uh we started selling that and having some success with it. But uh there were some shortcomings in the lock. The locking system was designed for the Canadian government, the US guys really didn't like it. I was working with Steve and he, he wasn't willing to make the changes that I wanted for the U S market. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then we, this is a brief, but funny story. A solicitation <laughs> came out for arms room assessment program. Um, we, we caught wind of this, the U S army special forces command USAFIC at the time was going to put out a solicitation for a contract. They wanted to hire a company to come in, survey all their armories and draft a report as to why their armories are failing inspections and make recommendations to make them better because U.S. Army Special Forces had the biggest problem. They had the most gear, the most complex gear. Mm -hmm. so what was it that them. was causing them to fail inspections? Just they couldn't, just the wasn't organized? Racks. They had the old pipe racks from the Vietnam era. 
that could hold M16s. M4s didn't fit, and there was no capacity to store optics, no okay. capacity to store radios. Just, I mean, they just had them in big metal bins. Mm. I mean, it was the armory, the photographs that we have from that project were, are, they're so bad. The armories were so bad. So we hear about this. Now, once a solicitation comes out, the, the customer can't talk to bidders. We can only talk to contracting. It's very limited what you can get. So we, we did a little research, found out who was running this thing, and got an appointment with a colonel at Fort Bragg to meet with him about the project. This Now, security is a three-person company. <laughs> Myself, Gary, a guy named Gary that worked for me, I had a girl that ran the office. And we go down to Fort Bragg. I mean, I know nothing about contracting. We know nothing. Of, you know, we've been doing this Canadian product that we worked with Steve. We've been selling this for a few years and we're pretty green. So I walk into this room and there's a Colonel in his office and I walked up to him and just said, hi, Colonel, my name's Tom Kuminick. I'm considered the leading authority on small arm storage and armory design. And I believe we're the company that can do this contract. We sat down and talked. We had a great conversation. We walked out and Gary's like, dude, what the fuck was that? What, what is that? <laughs> leading authority. And I just said, Gary, you know what? We got nothing to lose. There are no, yeah. nobody knows how to do this. Nobody knows, mm -hmm. nobody knows the space. I said, so we just came in and said, we're the pros from Dover. If we win this, we've got to be the pros from Dover. So we were up against like L3 and Harris, these big contractors that were probably bidding in the millions for this. We came in with a really competitive bid and won the contract. So for 18 months, I traveled all over the country to every single special forces armory I spent, you know, a day with the armorer. Um, I watched the workflow, interviewed them. Just we had access that civilians don't get. Yeah. And and there's a lot of armories. I mean, it, it took a long time. We gained so much. We built this huge dossier of information, a lot of photos, and it was during that contract that we actually became the leading authorities in small arm storage armory design. And out of that contract is when we developed the cradle grid technology, which is what you see behind me. Yeah. This so, is our new system. Yeah. Really quick, just to jump in, how how big are these armies? How many like weapons are we talking about? It depends on the unit. Most most of the armories are we call them a team room, ODA team room. So it's 12, 12 guys. You might have team rooms sharing an armory. Um, usually, it's unit level. So you'd have they range in size from one hundred and fifty to three hundred guns. Okay. And were you going way. into like some like top secret like classified areas and stuff like that, or is it mainly pretty pretty surface level stuff? Um, literally and physically surface level. It's um, most of it is not top secret. There's no we we did not get a secure. They did not want to. They're supposed to give us a security clearance. They realized they didn't need to. There are some areas that we were in that were, you know, gray. Yeah. But okay. and there's some things that they do that. Uh, that people don't know about in terms of of, of their small arms, but uh, no, most of it's just uh, most of it's pretty simple stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, getting into an armory is not easy, and I bet <laughs> getting. Uh, well, I'm just saying the, the the space. Nobody knows it. No, nobody knew about what these guys really wanted or how the systems could or should work. So that 18 months, we really kind of have those aha moments like look guys and it's like it's not the guns it's the gear that's killing these guys and it's all this stuff so we came up with the secure tactical weapon storage platform which then became cradle grid and this was a very simple it's it's the wall behind me mm -hmm. but in the military it's one moving part one adjustable saddle or cradle whether you have an m4 or a 50 cal machine gun or a mark 19 or a shoulder launch system you adjust on the fly it goes in the rack you walk away it's stored and then the rest of our system, using all the bins for all the gear, is stuff you can buy at Home Depot. And mm -hmm. we put this all together, did our presentation, and we came in with this bin concept using Home Depot bins. And we didn't know what they're, if they're going to like us or, or laugh at us. And we presented the information, and that was 2008. And they loved it. By 2011, we were the largest supplier to the U.S. military for small arms store, for building armories. We wow. just blew up. And it was it's funny because I developed and patented the whole system. I'd never owned a gun. <laughs> and uh, I bought my first uh, first gun in 2009. And uh, 
What was said, it? No, it was a Mossberg 500. Okay. It's because we were building, we were making, we were working with law enforcement. We made the fast box for vehicles and for home use. And it was a small single or two gun fast access safe. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? If we're going to get into this space, I've got to, I've got to become good at this. Yeah. So I picked up the 500. And, but really what I started doing is going to training classes, training courses. Um, so I jumped into like two day, three day, really intensive classes. I said, if I'm going to be in this space, I've got to be proficient. It's kind of like as a musician. Mm-hmm. If you hand somebody who doesn't play guitar a guitar, they just look awkward. They look out of place. Yeah. Same thing with a firearm. You hand a, a rifle to somebody who's not a shooter, and right away you know, wow, this guy doesn't know anything about guns. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, I've got to get really good at this. And uh, so I started doing that, and I started getting into hunting, and started going to sport shooting, long-range shooting, and now um, – I've got a pretty decent gun collection and uh, I don't shoot as much as I used to just because I've been so busy, but we get yeah. out and shoot all the time. That's awesome. So it sounds like, you know, you have had that kind of magical mix of positioning yourself at the right time, the right place, um, kind of being like people say, oh, he was in the right time, the right place, but there it's not just random like you position yourself to be there like you're kind of um strategic about it and then having that confidence um to like you said go in and tell this military dude like yeah. we're the leaders in doing this uh, even though you're not necessarily that was, um, was funny. that's almost comes back to the music side of being a smart ass it's almost that bad you know the cockiness of a you know you're playing in a rock band you walk out on stage like you own the place yeah, right. Out of that, there wasn't a lot. I mean, I figured I had nothing to lose. At yeah. worst, I'd say, get the hell out of here. I'd say, okay. Exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, that's like anything in life. I mean, even just like going, I remember in college, I don't know why this has come into my head, but I went to Virginia Tech. We had a huge football program and stuff like that. And so like the, the training facilities and the locker rooms were like, you know, you couldn't just walk in. But one day I just like walked in like I – belonged there and owned the place and no one said anything i just like walked in like just went straight into the locker room i was like looking around no one said anything because if you just walk in like you own the place and don't look like you know i'm not supposed to be here um just a small example but uh yeah that confidence just can mean so much (laughs) it does it's it's uh i always say bullshit with confidence will get you as far as a ivy education but it's interesting you know we're doing all this and what's funny is you still and we all have blinders to things. And the blinders we had, I look back now and it kind of shocks myself because we were doing, we were in the military, we were cranking and we were, the company was growing like crazy. I was traveling a lot. I had a plane. I, I was, I'm a pilot and I had a little oh, plane. Nice. I was flying all over these coasts. And it was, it was cool. Yeah. And then sequestration hit in uh, 2000, was it 13? The Obama, this was not an Obama problem. It was a congressional problem, but they set up the sequestration where, if, if they didn't balance a budget, it was forced military cutbacks. And the idea was back in like the 90s, they say, you know what? We're going to let the budget go, but we're going to do this sequestration where if we don't hit our numbers by, you know, 2000, whatever, it was 2012, it was forced cutbacks that are so deep that it'll, it'll guarantee the Congress then will hit the number. We'll get the budget right. And they didn't. So our business was booming and all of a sudden sequestration hit and boom, we went I went five months without getting a single order. We had a pretty good-sized company. Mm. Every two weeks, payroll, rent, and we started bleeding ourselves down, just hoping things were going to turn around. And uh, I ended up laying off. I probably waited too long. Ended up laying off most of the staff. We went back down to a three, four-person company, and we're about to go out of business. Just about. It was. It was. I mean, we. I had sold off everything I owned except my house. And my wife and I were looking at little little farmhouses. Figuring, let's sell the. We had a house on a lake. It was a nice place. I'd sell the house, and uh, I had three three kids. They were in, um, you know, middle school, grade school. They were little, and uh, you know, it, I was looking at you know what's what's going to happen now. Now I've been broke before. I've been through these roller coasters, but it was at that point that we said, you know what, I can't. Con- no matter how good we are, we can't control the faucet. If Congress says you got no money to the government, we're dead in the water. Mm-hmm. So that's when we decided to go into the retail space and look at the consumer. This is 2015. We started making, we took the fast box, started marking that in as an under the bed fast access gun safe. 
And then we developed our Agile cabinet, which is our ultralight, fast access, safe. And really everything we make for the consumer market is based on 20 years of military armory. So it's all lightweight, fast access. Just because it's light doesn't mean it's not secure. All safe should be bolted in place. And we started doing that and that business just exploded. And you know, the military's come back. It's still not the way it used to be, but retail is now 85, 90% of our business. Yeah. And it's just growing like crazy. I, I still look back saying, why didn't I think about retail in 2006, 2007? What, you know, it, we have these blinders on and it wasn't until my back was against the wall. I'm looking at a business going out. I'm looking at selling my house and I was out of all resources, but it's at those times of, of tragedy or times of desperation times where you got, where you're, you're at, you're at the limit where all of a sudden you think outside of your norm. Mm. And this little thing came out about retail. And I still wonder, you know, what, you know, what to everybody, what are we missing? You know, what am I missing now? What's right in front of me that I can't see? Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but there's always, you know, there's the people that just see things. Elon Musk is a great example. He sees things that the people don't see. Yeah. You know, his whole concept of electric cars, making them sports cars, as opposed to making them goofy Honda right. insights. Yeah. But, and it seems so easy now, but nobody else thinks of it. But uh, we're doing now what we're really into um, and we're really focused because the retail brand is, is fully engaged and uh, we're growing. We made Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies in America in 2018 and 2021. Wow. And uh, But now what we've really come up with and looking at is a training gap. You know, I take classes, courses whenever I can. I love going to, to training events and training centers. And all training starts like if a handgun training starts with the gun in your hand or a gun in your holster and you practice your draw, all your mechanics, your dry fire drills, all the drills you do. It's like being a musician, practice mm -hmm. your drills so that at a time of true performance, you can do it, but nobody trains for access. And most people when they're home are not going to have their gun on body. It's going to be in a safe. It's going to be locked somewhere. So we have, are building a curriculum for fast access, safe training. And, you know, for me with, you know, with my home, we use what we call the principles of decentralized storage. Instead of having one big safe, I've got lots of small, lightweight, modular safes. And they're located in, lo they're in locations where nobody would know they're there, in closets to my kitchen pantry. To We have a whole methodology to it, but I'm never more than two to three seconds away. And if, I've, if my safe is in my reach, I can be armed and addressing a threat in, in about two seconds. I'm really fast because I practice a lot. Yeah. We're, so we're trying to get this, we're building the curriculum to get this into the training community. So when people go to training classes, especially first time shooters, first time gun owners, handgun training, is you're going all your drills learning, now incorporate access training. You know, if you got a gun locked in a little next to your bed, how often do you in the dark reach over and do that? You know, could you do the combination? How long would it take? Mm -hmm. And then if somebody's broken in a window, smashing your house, if they're shooting at you, you're going to be in a fight or flight mode. You're going to get tunnel vision. Your motor, your fine motor skills will be gone. You've got to have the muscle memory built in order to execute yeah. on a defensive plan. So, yeah, it's just like practicing your draw. I mean, you got to. Absolutely. It's yeah. the same thing. So we are really focused on um, getting the curriculum built and rolling this out into the training communities. And so we're just getting started. And the response we've got has been fantastic. Yeah, we're hoping yeah, awesome. in a couple of years that access training is just part of um, basic firearms training. Yeah, um, no, I love that because, and I wanted to go back just a little bit because you talk, we talked about entering the private, you know, the private sector and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's easy when you kind of are um, in your day to day. You know, you you're, you have your systems, you have your processes in place, and you're kind of working right and then it's hard to say okay what's the next thing like you said until you're kind of backed into a corner but it's i think it's so smart because like as i alluded to earlier like you, you look behind me and it, i don't have those guns sitting against the wall right there because it looks cool it's just <laughs> that's just where they are um and i feel like especially like in a country like america where tons of people have guns and a lot of people have lots of guns um 
but there's like for me and I'm talking personally now like I've considered multiple times oh I need to get a gun safe and I'm like I don't want to deal with a 900,000 pound giant thing I, I don't it just get, stresses me out so I'm just like no nah, whatever I'll just keep it in my closet um, so it just seems like such a a need and you just kind of have like removed that barrier right there to people securing it because it's you know i have little kids and they do they come in here I mean, obviously i don't keep these things loaded um but then also you know i have a pistol in my uh you know bedside table in the drawer and you know i, I have it secured but it could be done better you know um and so it seems like su such a such a great problem you guys are addressing with with these secure but lightweight systems yeah, I, I'm surprised nobody, the whole safe industry, I don't want to you know, bash on these guys, but they've all been making the exact same product since 1965. They've yeah. never changed. In the interior of a gun, I mean, a 40-capacity gun, a forty capacity gun safe holds about 18 to 22 guns. And they, it's, all, it's all smoke and mirrors. The whole, fire ratings are nonsense. We prove that through actual real-world fire tests. And uh, it's just, at the end of the day, Lightweight modular safes make more sense. You know, the two most left behind things when people move, hot tubs and gun safes. And the average American moves every 6.3 years. So it's, you're right, it's a pain. But the other side is, you know, we're big on all guns should be locked. First, all guns should be locked. Second, just because your gun is locked doesn't mean you can't have one to two second access to it. Just as fast as you can open a drawer, I can remove a handgun from my fast access safe and be armed and addressing a threat. And you know, I deal with a lot of people. I talk to a lot of events. I talk to people like, well, you know, I don't have kids. I keep one gun unlocked next to my bed. And when you look at the actual data on accidents, accidental discharge, kids and firearms, it's kind of like NTSB reports on aviation. You go back through the chain of events and anything along this path, anywhere that chain breaks, mm -hmm. the tragedy doesn't happen. And I look at people say, I don't have kids. I don't worry about it. I said, okay, maybe you don't, but maybe your neighbor husband has a stroke and, the, and she's freaked out. And he's a young guy. Nobody knows why it happened. And he goes off to the hospital in the ambulance. She goes with him and you're like, Hey, can you watch the kids for a couple hours? Boom. Oh, now you got kids in your house. Yeah. You know, exactly. he's in the hospital for a week. It's not going go, whatever. Now the kids are in the house. They've been there long enough to get familiar. They're bored. There's kind of playing around exploring and you got a po possibility of additional tragedy sure that's how we're just trying to look at there's no reason not to secure a firearm anymore and yeah. i can demonstrate with with my storage systems whether i've got a, a you know shotgun an ar-15 or a handgun i can i'm i can arm myself in a position to defend myself in an ergonomic smooth motion that would surprise most people but anybody can do it just like guys who can draw a firearm really quickly and be on point, on target, accurate, so fast. It's because they practice all the time. Yeah. And it's the same thing for what we're doing. So, you know, it's, I'm taking my four to six hours of practicing a guitar every day, which I used to love to do, to, you know, practice access. Now I don't, I mean, every time I walk by one of my safes, I'll, I'll just not look and just do the combination, open the door, and just kind of go through it just to keep my proficiency but there's a point when i did it every single day for 15 minutes just yeah. just kind of wanting to be the badass of uh of opening gun safes <laughs> <laughs> do you think uh, just kind of random thought like is that um still you think the best um way to do it as far as like um you know actually putting a combination in as opposed to like you know pff, you know thumbprint or something or now what's we, your thought um, process on that um i use the term never fail and that's kind of how we look as never held technology. Um, RFID readers, we are going to incorporate some RFID readers on some of our, some of our locks, but the reason we're doing is not for fast access. It's for discreet. If you've got friends over and you want to open your safe, a fingerprint reader doesn't telegraph your combination. You don't have to worry about it, but in a firefight, in a true defense scenario, you want to practice the combination because our, the uh, fingerprint readers, if your hands are wet, they won't open. Hands are dirty, they won't open. Mm. You got gloves on, they won't open. There's so, if your skin is really dry, it can struggle to read. So yeah. it's, it's not, it's convenient, but it's not life-saving. And then now that we're seeing RFID come into the space, the little button tags that open the locks. And we've done a lot of RFID work in the military back in 2013, 14, 12, back in that day. And I think that's really problematic for the civilians. Because yeah. you buy the safe and it comes with 
RFID. So you got a wristband, you got key fobs, and maybe uh, one of the, like a credit card that all you want, you want it opens the safe. Most, your average gun owner are not familiar with key controls, with systems to control these pieces of access to your safe. You got a key fob, and then the worst ones, you hang it on your keys, hang your keys on the wall next to your back door, and the little fob says the name of the safe on it. Yeah. Well, now say brace. If somebody sees that, they say, wow, this guy's got a Hornady safe, and I've got the key to open it right here. Mm-hmm. And in a true firefight, if you're home and all of a sudden somebody smashes in your front door, you can go digging for your keys or digging for a fob. Or no, you're going to walk over and do the combination, yeah. which I can do in sub one second, and open the safe. In fact, yeah. we did panic tests with a, at a training center in the south. And we just provided a safe that had fingerprint readers and push button, and we were sh- and they were shooting paintballs. Hard, I mean, this hurt. It was not pleasant. <laughs> to get the reaction, everybody went to the push button. Nobody tried to do the fingerprint reader. Yeah, it's just it's just our nature. So, yeah, that makes sense. Talk to me a little bit about like because I have not a gun safe, but just like a little like home safe over here for like you know passports and cash yep. and stuff. And I'm like, I was thinking about this the other day, and I'm actually looking at it right now, and it's not locked because I also have all my tags in it for this hunting season. Some of yeah. them are, like, really big tags that I drew. And, like, I am scared that this, you know, little uh, probably Chinese-made, probably costs about $3 to manufacture little push-button thing, that thing decides to not work, and all my important stuff is just, like stuck in this safe and I have no idea what to do. So like talk to me a little bit about how you guys, you know, keep that part of the system reliable and, and, and whatnot. Just testing. Yeah. All it is, is, you know, the cheap, cheap, cheap Chinese products are just that. And, and we do make some things in China and I get, I get lit up for it online sometimes. And I tell people, a lot of people the same thing. Anybody, you know, if you know the metal fabrication company that, Put them in touch with me. We send out RFPs and RFQs all the time looking for U.S. manufacturers. It's so much easier to make in the U.S. Anything. Dealing in China right now is a pain in the ass. And with the tariffs, it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. My problem is I can't find a metal fab that, that can handle the volume or handle our our, our level of, of precision and bending. I'm not saying wow. we can't do quality. It's just if you're a shop that has a you know 10-ton presses, you're going to cut your... You're going to bend your corners a certain way. Well, I need a certain level of precision to make these things work. Yeah. We can't find a U.S. manufacturer, and the average metal bender, average press brakeman in America is like 57, 58. The average machinist is almost 60. In oh, 10 wow. years, this industry has gone because there's no kids go into it. Hmm. Now, in China, they've been bending metal for you know, 50 years. That's where most, most of the fab work is done. If you spend the money, you can get quality. I mean, iPhones are made in China. There's some very high quality stuff made in China. Precision. Oh, work. for sure. Yeah. You just, it's just the Walmart effect is they want the cheapest, cheapest, cheapest stuff they can get. And they keep price pressures to where the Chinese are just making the cheapest crap. So like our locking solutions go through, um, it's robotic testing, push buttons going through just tens of thousands of things just yeah. running. You know, they just set, they set those testers up and just let them go and just say, you know, go till fail. And you get, you know, you get into 180,000, 200,000 combinations and the thing's still going. So we're, we're pretty good about it. And we're, again, everything in life I look at as a, as a knife blade, you can always sharpen the blade. And totally. so we're always looking, we're, we're revamping all of our locking solutions right now to standardize on one, one keypad, one keypad. They're much larger. Our buttons are much larger than a standard safe button on all of our new locks. We want it so that if you've got secure safes in your home, regardless of what model you have, key the keypads are identical or, or, or so similar that you know your pattern in the dark. Doesn't matter what safe you're at, mm-hmm. and you, you've got it. You're just gonna perfect. Nail. Yeah, um, that's awesome, man. Uh, well, one thing I wanted to ask about real quick is, um, like going back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, it seems to me that like you in your career have been strategic about kind of what areas and what markets you're going into. Um, and it's, it's served you well. Um, and you know, we were also talking about thinking out of the box and that kind of thing. Do you have, um, and like a lot of this is very similar, like a creative process, but do you have like any kind of 
process that you go through to like, or um, practice that you do to, to strategize or to think or like, I don't know, meditate or anything or like something that you do that like where you think about this kind of stuff or strategize? You know, it's, it's, uh, I do. It's not, it's, it's, so I like old cars, like sports okay. cars. And I spend one to two hours, oh, not every day, but almost, you know, my warehouse, now the company, we're, we've grown to, we're not using the warehouse in Syracuse anymore. I've got warehouse in Memphis and then one out in Salt Lake City. Um, so I've got a, a lift right now. I'm building a 66 Ford Falcon. My oh, last cool. car was a 68. Now I've got a 68 Corvette that I completely took it down nuts and bolts, rebuilt it as a daily driver. I've got 8,000 miles on it this year, and it's a wow. screamer. Um, so that's my, but I find I'll, either that or I'm in, uh, in prototyping and, you know, product development for us, for me is not done with a CAD machine. I use wood, metal, hmm. hammers and plastic. I just shape and mold and I make kind of ugly, we call them Franken brackets, what we want. <laughs> I prove the concept. Then I, I take, give that to a guy to say, make a CAD of this. I want them to look like this and I have other people do it, but that's cool. I find those like wrenching on a car or working on a project like that it just clears my head and if i'm stuck on a problem with work i'll go out there and work for a while you know sand doing body i'm doing body work on the falcon ready to paint it and it's people look at it as, as tedious awful work but you know you're just your single point focus i'm just i'm trying to get this panel perfectly flat and it's kind of a zen thing but while yeah. you're doing that the back of your your, your brain now that you've you freed up. You're you're using your hands. You're using your eyes. You're so you, by doing that though, you're blocking out a lot of sensory input, mm -hmm. and I think your brain just kind of kind of zones out. It's the opposite of sitting in a tree stand. You know, it's it's. <laughs> I'm so I'll have headphones. Sometimes I get earplugs on. If I'm using a you know tool, so my ears are covered, and you end up in this like almost like a sensory deprivation mode of, mm -hmm. of single point focus of doing just one thing. Yeah. And I'm done. I work for an hour and a half. That's when I get done. I clean up, come back in the office. All of a sudden, I got the solution. It's kind of like you see things differently. Yeah. Yeah. Three it's like a... is the opposite because you, you sit there in the morning as the sun comes up and you're hyper aware of every little noise as the sun slowly comes up. And that's a whole different experience. Yeah. The... Yeah. It's kind of like a flow state or like, <laughs> and people talk about, because I think that same thing too. People a lot of times think if you have to just like, just think about something really hard, but it's almost like grasping at the wind. Sometimes you need to go do something else and let it just in your subconscious be like digesting for a while, you know? Oh yeah. And, Our uh, brains are working 24 seven. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people is sometimes, especially kids, they never give themselves a chance to solve a problem because they're trying so hard to solve it. And I think, I think the technology, the phones, the, the constant in your face, um, I think that's real problematic for problem solving because it's, it's those, when you're watching, you're scrolling through reels or scrolling through Instagram and you're, you're giving your brain everything it needs for that moment, mm -hmm. but you're not processing. You're not, you're not advancing your own cause. You're not, you're not helping yourself. Absolutely. I've seen it in my kids. I've seen it in a lot of other people and it's, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think it gets worse before it gets better. Cause it's. Yeah. And I almost feel like it's uh intentional like they it's designed to make you lackadaisical and like yeah. not care about stuff just like i was sitting in a my wife we just had our third child recently and we had to go into the emergency room after the fact everything was fine but i'm sitting in this room with all this medical equipment right everything in this room has a purpose there's nothing in there for like just because like everything has a purpose and there's a television in there with a TV show going. And I'm like, okay, that they're not trying to entertain us. That's there for a purpose to keep you docile, to keep yeah. you not worried, not freaking out, um, to calm you down. And that's there for a reason. And that's the same reason why, you know, people say don't watch too much TV or, you know, people get on about TV or social media is because it is intentionally there to make you docile and, and calm and just zone out and not worry about stuff. <laughs> time goes by. It's just, it, it allows you to occupy time. You know, I was asked a while ago, I was in a, was a business group. What do you value the most? What's your most, and everybody's, you know, family, family that I said time. Mm. 
And they all said, look, it doesn't matter. If I don't take time to enjoy family, family doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. I was in a hospital. My wife had a, had to go in for, I don't know what it was. It was years ago. And I walk into the um, little waiting room there and there's two or three other people in there and they're all reading. I walked up and just turned off the TV because I hate, I don't, I, I don't watch TV. I, I hate having that, that noise in the background. People, blah, blah, just, you know, talk show dates. I find that just numbing. I about got crucified for turning off the TV. <laughs> they were, I mean, they're, they're, none of the people are watching it. Right. But they, they needed that background. Once they sat in silence, hmm. all of a sudden it's like, and to me it's, it's I don't know. Yeah, I, got, I got ripped up for it, and then the nurse got mad at me too. I'm like, nobody's watching it. Yeah. But it's, it's, yeah, it's mind-numbing. To uh, I actually bought a TV. We, we redid a den in my house, and uh, we actually put a TV in about four years ago. So okay. I now own a TV, and we watch F1 races. That's about it. Okay. That's the, uh, the, the family event. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, there's there's a time for everything and, and whatever, but um, at least you can be careful about the type of content you're putting in. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's wild, man. It's um, easy to do. I sat, I get up in the morning once in a while, sit there, I get my phone, all of a sudden you find something funny, and, you, and all of a sudden I realize half hour went by. Yeah. Or, like, I'll get on there on Instagram, and they've gotten really good at this. Like, they know how to, like, suck you in. And, like, yeah. and I'll go to my search function to, like, type in, like, let's say I need to, like, send somebody a message about something business-related. And I'll go in, and I'll go to the search thing, and I'll just start, like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Whoa. And then, like, I completely forgot why I even opened Instagram. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. And I, it's it's so crazy, man. Yeah, I don't know what the future is going to be, but uh... – People, you know, the attention deficit issues in America are growing, and phones are certainly contributing to it. Absolutely, uh, I think time. that's why it's so important to be intentional about, like you said, leaving your phone in the car when you go hunting, or you know, go out for a week in the wilderness where you, you know, the only reason you're touching your phone is maybe to look at maps or something. Um, but it's uh, it's beneficial, you know, even if it's just small steps, like you know, go for a 20 minute walk in your neighborhood without your phone. That's, you know, it's funny. I was, I was having a conversation about that very thing is, is the question, are you uncomfortable going for a walk without your phone? Mm -hmm. And most people are very uncomfortable. In fact, they won't do it. Some people go crazy they, yeah. because, but it only takes what, in my my experience is you leave without your phone. You're like, shoot, well, I can't, well, I can't check this. I can't show well, you don't need to check. But within about 15 minutes, it goes away. Yeah. You're fine. But yep. there is that little bit of anxiety of i'm disconnected yeah uh oh this isn't good for you know, sure i want and, to make sure my tweet gets followed or i want to make sure my post gets like yeah you know, i don't know how people are doing with it yeah because there's like a dopamine release with that stuff it's been studied a lot it's uh it's addictive you know um but i was the same thing i was on um i do like i go out and ruck like for training you know and do hikes and stuff with a heavy pack and um a lot of times i'll just throw in a podcast or whatever and but then the other day I just like I just wasn't feeling it I just didn't and I was like, man this is better training because you're training your body but also like if you intentionally decide to not like listen to music or a podcast or whatever you're training your mind too because I was then I was intentionally trying to use that time to train my mind to all right let's as I'm hiking let's not just zone out and like glass my you know glass out. Like right. let's let's pretend I'm actually hunting and be alert and aware and looking in the woods and and you know what I mean so, and it was like very much like physical training where I had to constantly remind myself okay no like take in your surroundings be aware instead of just kind of zoning out and like just marching through the woods but that's what you have to do when you're hunting so it's 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 good to I think use that time to actually train your body and your mind. Um, or even spiritually, if you want to like pray while you're walking or whatever, but, um, you know, and sometimes you just want to like throw on techno and just jam and run or whatever, but <laughs> sometimes you, know you need to like it's, train your mind, you know, it's, we were doing a bunch of work in the warehouse and we had, we had some old metal just cranking out there. Actually, and that was a lot of fun, but you hit on it though, is when you, people have the constant earbuds, a constant audio, a constant, their inner voice is turned off. Yes. You're not talking to yourself at all. Yes. And I find, you know, as a musician back in the day, people are always amazed at how little music I listen to because I listen to music, 
but I don't listen to it passively. I would sit and listen. Yeah. When I was, doing, when I, was I used to drive with people, they go nuts because I wouldn't have the radio on. Mm -hmm. In fact, I owned a Honda Accord. I bought first new car I ever bought in 1987. It didn't have a radio in it. <laughs> I figured, you know what? That's fine. I'm going to put a nice stereo system in it. I drove it for five years without a radio in it. Yeah. My brother. That's where some I do, my best thinking is driving. Yeah, absolutely. I drive to work. I've, you know, I've always set up where my office is 25 to 30 minutes from my home. Cause I, I like love that, that too. That Me too. Time. And, uh, I've got multiple, you know, living here now, there's no traffic. I've got country roads. And uh, sometimes I'll put on a podcast, but I'll do a pod, maybe three days a week I'll do it. But most of the time I have, a, I have it's quiet. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of let my myself gel out. The other thing, you know, if I'm doing a speech, every every time I ever speak in an event, my, my speeches are all 27 minutes. Mm -hmm. That's how long I talk for because... That's how much time from when I leave my driveway to I pull in here. And I just rehearse speeches while I'm driving. Okay. Everything I talk about is 27 minutes. Yeah. I'm the same way, man. I've always enjoyed having at least a 20 to 30 minute commute just to like, yeah. and I, I, I try to wake up about an hour before my kids get up too and have quiet time. I like to, you know, kind of read the Bible and pray a little bit, but also kind of meditate. Uh, I love having that quiet. You got it these days. I mean, you just, I know it sounds cliche, but you just got to be really intentional about getting, like, like you said, you can't always just be stuffing that inner voice down. Uh, you no, got to let it come it. out. It's, yeah. It drives me nuts. I, I'm up at four usually most mornings. I'm in bed at 10 and 10, 10 30, but I'm up, I'm up before any, my daughter gets up with me and has a cup of coffee and then she goes back to bed. But I usually go out to the ranch in the mornings. I'm on a tractor till about nine 30 um, nice. or do something just cause I find for me, it's like, I'm up at four and then from four till about eight o'clock. I'm so far. I feel, I feel like I'm ahead of the world. I've yeah. got four hours of work done. And sometimes that first four hours, I get more done than I do the rest of the day. Oh yeah. But it's just, I come home like this weekend, I was up working um, with an excavator, put, getting ready to put a blind in. And I came home and everybody was still in bed. And my kids are there now at that age of beers with friends. They're home at three in the morning kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm just like, you guys, I've had a whole day. Yep. And you guys haven't done anything yet. So it's, uh, <laughs> yep. That goes back to like not wanting to be a, like a musician, you know? It's like yeah. no, you're wired to get up and want to do stuff, you know? That that was the biggest problem is I was up, I'm an early morning. I like Me to go too. to bed early. When the sun goes down, I go down. Mm -hmm. and I think my natural rhythm is to be up between 3 30 and 4 and out. Yep. Um, not cool. sitting in a chair told for two hours. Until you go do something, actually getting out, driving out of the driveway in the dark, and mm -hmm. wherever I am, watching the sun come up is just the magic. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, but so okay, I don't want to take too much more of your time here, <laughs> but it's going to go off another tangent. But we've, um, we've covered we've covered a lot today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Last question. Yes. Any advice for entrepreneurs out there? You know, it's um. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. Seek help. Get, get, you know, I always talk to people. Mm. I've, I've had so many people, so many mentors, so many. If I'm unsure of something, I ask. And people want to help you. Also, hang out. I mean, if you want to drive a BMW, hang out with people that drive BMWs. That's so good. If you want to, you know, hang out with people that will elevate you. I just look at all your friends. The people you hang out with, do they bring you up or do you bring them up? It's okay to bring other people up, but if all your friends are people that you're bringing up to your level, you need to find new friends. Find people totally. that you aspire to be better to and uh, always be learning. Just always, every day you've got to learn something new. I love that. Yeah, I mean, my mom used to always say, it's a lot easier if you're standing on a table for people to pull you off the table than for you to pull them up on the table. So yep. uh, that's that's good. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks a lot. Where can folks go if they want to check out Secure It? Um, and get one of your um, systems in place. Um, Google the word secure it. We're secureitgunstorage.com. We've got a lot in social media and YouTube. Um, and yeah, it's, it's we're pretty easy to find online. Cool, so man. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, I think people will be, uh, some people it's a bit of a reach. You're going from a 900 pound safe to a 100 pound safe. But you know what? It's so easy to live with gun storage that you can pick up and move. And once you have it in place, you bolt it down. They're just as secure. 
to me, I, I love that. Like I said, that's the only reason I haven't got a gun safe is because I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, so. If my wife always says, if I can't vacuum under it, I ain't getting it. <laughs> that oh, cool, sounds really sexist and she's not like that but it's just funny yeah well thanks again for your time dude i appreciate yeah. it it's been a great conversation so thanks man all right thanks a lot all right talk to you later